Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine. And today is no exception. I am delighted to be with a very longtime colleague, uh, Dr. Bruce Hoffman. We've got an exciting sort of depth conversation planned for you today. Let me let me actually spell out why it's going to be a deep conversation. Just listening to his extensive training um, will suggest where we're going. So Dr. Hoffman is uh, a Calgary-based, Calgary, Canada-based integrative and functional medicine doctor. He is the director of the Hoffman Center for Integrative Medicine, also the Brain Center of Alberta, specializing in complex medical conditions. He was born in South Africa and obtained his medical degree from the University of Cape Town. He's got a master's in nutrition. He's a certified functional medicine practitioner through the Institute for Functional Medicine. He's board certified with a fellowship in anti-aging and regenerative medicine. He's trained in the Shoemaker Mold Protocol. He's a certified Ayurvedic practitioner. He's trained in Bredesen Recode Brain Treatment, um, in the MAPS Autism um, uh, uh, training. He's a certified family constellation therapy uh, specialist. He's trained in ILADS for Lyme and co-infections. He's also, he's also a contributing author to the recent paper, which is available. In fact, we'll link to it on our show notes um, from Dr. Afrin's group uh, titled Diagnosis of Mast Cell Activation Syndrome, a Global Consensus Two, so mast cell activation is 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 something that he's also focused on. I also I actually also want to bring to your attention um, more, just the, kind of the the rich depth. I mean, clearly, uh, Bruce, you're a lifelong you're a lifelong learner, but I think you've really kind of taken these things in. I just just want to give you a little more of his background. Um, he's trained in Chinese medicine, in homeopathy, and German biological medicine. Um, you almost went to 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 get certified board board certified in, in psychiatry. You wanted to be a Jungian analyst. I thought I found that really interesting, Dr. Hoffman, in your history. You and and so you bring that to your work now with patients. Um, so you did some of that training, even though you didn't move into psychiatry, but you did some of that training. You worked with John Cabot Zinn, with Deepak Chopra, um, with uh, Dr. Klinghart, with Ken Wilber. I mean, you know. First of all, welcome to New Frontiers. Thank you. <laughs> and what haven't and what <laughs> haven't you done? So it's it so, like I don't have a life. <laughs> <laughs> it's extraordinary. And I I, I want to spell it out. Um, listen, I, I I know that you're 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 actively you're just doing this amazing work with with your patients and you're fusing this intense training that you've undergone and that you continue to experience into what you describe as the seven stages of health and transformation. So it's not like you do a weekend course and then the books go away or the, the PDFs are put away. I mean, you're actually uh, working with these, these, um, these tools and making them into something your own. And, and, and it's called the seven stages of health and transformation. And I know that you're working with very complex patients in Canada and people actually beyond Canada. I know people are drawn to your work from all over the place. Um, and I, and I want, so I want you to talk about the seven stages and, you know, what your approach is to these complex patients that are coming to see you. Yeah, uh, sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, the when I was young, I was um, a young 
teenager, I was exposed to a school teacher in South Africa who was very different. And he took us out of our sort of South African apartheid, white, privileged background and sort of threw us into, uh, through me in particular, into an alternative universe whereby I was exposed to the world of psychotherapy, psychoanalysis, and Eastern thought. And I had at a very young age an experience which they call Satori, which is a sense of seeing uh, space-time as a continuous whole and not seeing um, cause and effect as being linear. And it was a sort of, a, many people have these, they, they're sort of called awakening experiences or aha experiences. And that just sort of catapulted me into a different way of looking at things. And then ex, uh, excited, uh, um, initiated in me a curiosity about all aspects of uh, human, of the human psyche and human development and human potential. And uh, originally, I sort of got interested in um, Jungian psychoanalysis and wanted to become an analyst and went to med school only to become an analyst. And I was actually accepted into the psychiatric residency, um, but actually didn't uh, go through with it. I, I, I worked for two years in psychiatry and the military. I had to go to compulsory military training, uh, but I didn't actually do my residency. Um, and I do feel quite privilege in the sense that um, by not taking that particular route, I was able to keep expanding across all layers and levels of experience. And what I found was when I ended up just being a, a family doctor in rural Saskatchewan and seeing the limitations of drug-based, which, you know, the Majid Ali beautifully named it N squared, D squared medicine, name of disease, name of drug. Once you start to see the limitations and then you start to look at the potential of human potential, uh, potential of human uh, achievement and what they can aspire to, one sort of moves out of just treating disease to trying to get uh, your patients to look at, you know, uh, optimal potential of their entire existence. And so what I do now through the seven stage model is view pathology or so-called disease states or complex symptomatology as an entry point into uh, a dialogue with a patient, but I'm also looking at other aspects of their psyche and their experiences to see what it is that their soul, if you will, is asking to asking to come through. What what is it that they're trying to achieve? What is it? You know, symptoms to me are teleological. They're sort of pointing towards um, hidden uh, subjects that need to be uh, brought to the surface. I never see symptoms as linear. I always think of them as what is what is the body attempting to do by throwing out these these um, particular uh, imbalances. And with that approach, and using my early exposure to uh, Ayurveda and Advaita, which is a, a system of Hindu philosophy that I was exposed to by the school teacher. And I was able to build a model called the seven stages to health and transformation, which looks at the human experience as being divided, which is a silly term because there is no division, but it's conceptually divided into these layers and levels of experience. The first level being the outer world, the external environment. And that's sort of level one in, the, in, in, in this conceptual field. And from that we draw 
everything to do with what's going on in the chemosphere outside of ourselves, you know, the toxicology and the infectious load. And we look at that from a pathological point of view. That's level one. Level two is the physical structure, which is made up of biochemistry and structural aspects. And that is what we do in both traditional medicine and in functional medicine. And in all the structural modalities like chiropractic and, and body work, et cetera. And then level three is to do with the, with the brain, the peripheral and the autonomic nervous system and its electric effect, uh, um, electrical effects on physiology and biochemistry. And then what are the man-made EMFs effects on that? And then level four is to do with the emotional body. And as we know that many people have these adverse childhood experiences, which then get laid down neurologically in the brain as specific uh, defects, particularly in right frontal lobe development and activation of the amygdala and the fight flight response with uh, down regulation of the vagal nerve. And these you can, you know, because I have this brain treatment center, you can diagnostically look at this and treat it accordingly. And then level five is to do with ego development, the how people um, negotiate the slings and arrows of, of this, <laughs> I hate, you know, the world's a tough place. We, we okay. sort of, we sort of always somewhat vigilant against the next thing that's going to arise. And so we develop in the first half of life, a very different set of strategies from in the second half of life, uh, in terms of how we develop our ego, our, which is our sense of how we negotiate the world and our belief systems, our values, um, and our defenses. People grow up with um, a way of orientating themselves, but they also remain highly defended to those things which are most traumatic. And depending on early childhood experiences, uh, defenses can be highly um, helpful or, or healthy, you could say, but they can also be highly pathological when people suppress anything that comes close to an early experience of trauma, the so-called PTSD response. So, so level five is everything to do with the ego and how it negotiates its way in the world. And the first 30 years are all about ego development and they're characterized by certain drives, drives of the libido, drives of the of full power, drives to know oneself. And um, all the great psychoanalysts analysts of the 19th century were very, they had great insight into these mechanisms. Um, but they're now used therapeutically in a system called ISTDP, where psychologists look at defense structures that people bring to the uh, therapeutic encounter and work one-on-one -on -one with them in transference and counter-transference to try and get behind that which they're defending against and which is asking to be brought forward. So that level is very important. And then level six is the, what we call the soul. This is the most authentic part of who you are, the most instinctual part of who you are, which never really comes to any sort of conscious assertion until the second half of life, I would say. Carl Jung, the great psychoanalyst, wouldn't look at patients uh, before the age of 40. He said they're taken up by too many drives. They, there's just nobody, there's no conscious awareness of the deepest self to work with. And so he would, wouldn't work with anybody under the age of 40.
which is rather strange, but it's true. Uh, it's very people. interesting in this anti-aging obsession that we yeah. live in, isn't <laughs> it? I mean, clearly there's some wisdom, but keep keep going. Yeah. Um, so, and our personal, you know, when we're born and we're born into our experiences, very often, you know, when you're not seen by your parent adequately and being seen by a parent, you don't have to be perfectly seen, but a good parent will always support and challenge a child accordingly. But if, it, if there's any neglect or abuse and neglect trauma appears to be even more traumatic to a child than abuse trauma, the child will develop a provisional self, an adaptive self to go out into the world in order to achieve what it's meant to achieve. But the, but the authentic self, the instinctual self will often go underground and then be hidden by these defenses. And this comes up, I can't tell you how many people present to me in sort of midlife, midlife being anywhere from 35 to 55. It's not, it's not you know, it's, it's, it starts at a, somewhat of a younger age when entropy starts to set in. And they are being driven to ask deeper questions of themselves and to, to reclaim those parts of themselves, which they know instinctively they left behind in their pursuit of safety and being seen. So their provisional selves go out, achieve something in the outer world, but there's something crippled and something quite damaged um, or, or well-preserved, some innocence well-preserved that's hidden from sight. And people in midlife generally kind of know that. And they they want to often go back and retrieve those hidden parts of themselves that they know uh, are, are manifesting as symptoms, but they have no conscious connection with them. So part of the work I do is trying to find out what, and I, ask the, you know, I don't ask this question out loud, but I'm asking it while I'm interfacing with a patient is, what is what are these symptoms telling me and what does the soul want what is the innate wisdom and innate um, creativity of this patient that needs to be brought to the forefront and that's the fundamental question that sits there while i'm looking at all the functional medicine toxicology biochemistry hormones mitochondria i'm yeah. just i'm always asking having these conversations in my head what is what's really what is this what is the soul one what is what is being asked of this person what do they need to manifest in order to bring parts of themselves back home and that is the second half of life quest really how do you gain your creative instinctual self and not only that, but there's also another hidden part, and that's the hidden part of your family system. Family systems carry secrets and carry hidden entanglements that often manifest themselves epigenetically and get expressed through biochemistry as symptoms. And I've done some marvelous work with, um, well, I haven't, but I've partnered with Mark Wolin, who is an exceptionally gifted um, uh, functional uh, family uh, constellation practitioner and we look at once a year we used to do a workshop where we looked at symptoms of patients who came to my clinic and tried to link them to any inner entanglements of the family system two to three generations before the mm. patient is even born mm. and it's extraordinary what entanglements you find and what dynamics you find which can manifest as symptomatology in the patient. And this research is very well established now. It's all, all the major universities that uh, there's an epigenetic uh, yeah. transfer of, of trauma through the generations. 
And then lastly, the spirit, the level seven is the spiritual body. And that's, you know, that's a part of ourselves that's, that's transcendent to any ego-based space-time demands. And that's where you surrender to some intelligence greater than yourself and just sort of stay open to that potential. And that's another whole realm of what we call the one mind beyond space-time. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So I use that model. So when patients present, I'm just trying to sense uh, they come. You know, the, one of the great tragedies that I find, or one of the great challenges, not tragedies so much as challenges, is that when you become well-versed in functional medicine, people will present and they'll write in their entry forms. You'll ask them, why are you here? And they'll say, well, I've got mast cell lime or mold or whatever, yeah. add whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and, and they will sort of have reduced the entire um, symptomatology to what they believe to be a lab test or a symptom that they're experiencing and right. it's never the case it's never yeah. the case those are just inquiries those are entry points into a much deeper dialogue in my experience and um, and so i always i'm always curious <laughs> yes you may have you may have a trigger called lime or a trigger mold and my cells have gone awry yes that's true but really, what is, what's the deeper reality that we need to sort of work with? And sometimes I get to it and sometimes I don't. Sometimes I just treat myself and lime and mold and be done well, with it. But other times not. Yeah, sorry. Well, let me, well, I just, I mean, you've just, this would have extraordinary entry into our conversation. <laughs> Thanks for all of that. It's just, I mean, it's just, it's amazing. And I, and I can, I, I, I mean, I can just tell that you're, that you are sitting with all of these levels. And I think that, you know, in functional medicine, they talk about gathering before the patient encounter. Yes, that's right, that's right. And, and we're, I think I can hear that you're gathering at all of those levels, which mm -hmm. creates a possibility in the encounter. It's been extraordinary. So have you, is this written? Have you written about this? Have you? Uh, I've, yeah, yeah, I've written. I've got podcasts with transcripts and I've written a book, which unfortunately sits on my laptop. <laughs> All right, we can, you can link to it on our show notes. I'm, I'm kidding, but yeah. I, it's just, it's, it's powerful. And, and we'll, okay, so, so our, we'll bug you about it so that we can link to, yeah. um, you know, what you've got available in our, in our show notes. It's yes. just really transform. I mean, it's it's like it's 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 an expansion on functional medicine principles in a real in a very important way. So that was one question, and then the other thought that I was having, and you started to touch on it, is um, yeah. The, so the presentation, this phenotypic presentation of mast cell activation or Lyme, and and it's true that our patients will come with us come to us with you know, pretty rigid ideas on this yeah. and what it means. And, and as yeah. you said, either you, you know, you move beyond it or you don't and you address yeah. it and, and, and life yeah. goes on, but yeah. you alluded to in your, in the, in the beginning of your, um, you know, unpacking the, um, the seven stages, you alluded to sort of these as having information in them in and of themselves, like maybe uh, like what kind of a, is, is, is there is there kind of a, a personality type or somebody who comes with a certain type of a family constellation structure that might be more vulnerable to Lyme and color infection or might be more vulnerable uh, to autism or MCAS? I mean, can you speak to that? Well, the, the, the interplay is complex, as you know, from um, 
genetics to mm-hmm. diet to sleep to rest to toxicology right um and and to you know ever increasingly obviously to um early developmental experiences yes. i mean i can't emphasize how profound that uh, those experiences play on um on outer expression of biochemistry it's unbelievable yes. You know, I want to just say as an aside that I am with you on that. I mean, we, I've, I did a, uh, we just published a study in looking at DNA methylation, you know, so looking at the epigenome and one of the things that's just stopped me in my tracks is this idea of biochem, of of biological embedding, which is exactly what you're talking about, where the, the signatures of the psychic experience are laid down on the genome. Yeah. It's quite extraordinary. And, and I, I, you know, people come and they see me say for mast cell, and then they find themselves doing a QEEG and a neuroquant MRI and doing, yeah. you know, uh, neuropsych questionnaires. And they go, why are you doing all this? I've got mast cell. Well, yeah. mast cell is the expression of your, you know, mitochondria undergo the cell danger response. They released ATP. ATP caused degranulation of the mast cell. Uh, and the release of a thousand mediators. So yes, you have mast cell activation syndrome, but what's underlying? What are all the triggers? The, well, in functional medicine, the antecedents, yeah. mediators, and triggers that provoke this mast cell to go crazy. And then, and so, and and how how the you know the brain is the interface between one's epigenetic and early developmental experiences. And one's outer experiences, it, it, the brain is the interface. And if you look at a QEEG and even a neuroquant MRI, you can read biographies of those. They're so alarmingly wow. informative. And so I look at a, you know, I look at a, a, a body-based stress assessment. I look at a heart rate variability as we all do. But then I look at a QEEG and I look at this sort of juxtaposition of the delta, theta, beta, alpha brain waves, and you can really see imprints of early developmental trauma. And, and you can see people who are stuck in, you know, fight flight responses, people who are stuck in poor Jesus, polyvagal, dorsal, um, you know, dorsal vagal responses. You can see it right there in the biochemistry and the physiology. And you know that that person say, who's stuck in poor Jesus, poly, you know, the, the, the dorsal vagal shutdown response, that's a whole different patient than somebody who's just got a few allergies. You're dealing with a whole different kettle of fish there. And you can't just jump right in and, and just do your normal functional medicine and try a few supplements. It's, it's a whole nother experience, which you have to be sensitized as a practitioner to those layers and levels of complexity. And I use these tools to interpret it. If you look at a do a neuroquant MRI, you can see the amygdala hypertrophied, like 97th percentile. It's like twice the size of the standardized, you know, the peer match group. You can see amygdala hypertrophy. You can see the thalamus hypertrophy, and the thalamus is rich in mast cells. You can see, you know, white matter being um, decreased and, and so forth and so on. You can see all sorts of fingerprints of of these complex uh, triggers that can create symptomatology in these complex patients. It's absolutely, it's just extraordinary. So I, I, what is, so somebody comes in a typical allergy, you know, seasonal allergy, maybe they're bad and, you know, and 
so you'll just treat them accordingly and get them balanced yeah. but it's relatively straightforward yeah. so you've got but you've got somebody else also coming in and sneezy allergic etc cetera, etc cetera. but you you diagnose this this amygdala imbalance you imbalance i mean you go down this whole different direction so how how would what would it just just roughly describe your entry into treatment with these two with similar phenotypic but very un, different underlying causes um so it, I, well first of all i don't see patients anymore with just simple allergies i wish i did yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, those I would just treat with, you know, H1, H2 blockers and, and quercetin, vitamin C, like all of us know how to do. Yeah. But people with complex illness who have these multiple layers and levels of, um, of imbalances, I, I, th I throw quite a large diagnostic net. I mean, I do a lot of uh -huh. testing. I'm criticized for it because of cost. But I also know myself well enough to know that without it, I'm going to be just another practitioner along the long chain of practitioners who took a little swipe at something and yeah. didn't get much done and didn't look at the complex interface of all the different parameters. So I do throw a large diagnostic net um, and do ask for, you know, all the tests we know so well, um, food sensitivities, gut microbiome, uh, histamine levels, zonulin, DAO. I do all the mast cell mediator markers. I do all the, you know, the sort of ion panels and things, look at sure. levels and methylation. I do all of that. Mm -hmm. Look at toxicology. Um, but I also do uh, quite a lot with um, the brain, heart rate variability, um, autonomic nervous system functioning. And if, and and often refer for psychometric assessment to look for um, um, psychiatric diagnoses, um, whether they be cluster B personality disorders or whether they just be mood disorders. So I refer out for those and I gather all this data. I also refer a lot to dentists and chiropractors, particularly nuclear chiropractors, visceral manipulation therapists. We just, we do, we do a lot of diagnostics and try and gather a, um, a insight into what hierarchically will be the uh, entry point into this person's therapeutic experience. Yeah. I left out the most important thing, <laughs> which, is, uh, which is I look, uh, apart from food and gut, which of course trumps most things, um, I looked at, uh, we look at the mitochondrial functioning so and we look at the fatty acids because, as you know, the the mitochondria are the canaries in the coal mine, and they're the first thing to sense any danger, whether the danger is perceived or real, chemical or imagined. And we have this incredible capacity now through the IGL test in Germany to look at mitochondrial functioning and through body bio or the Kennedy-Krieger fatty acid test to look right. at fatty acids. And those are the two tools that have trumped everything in Wow. What is that? Tell me, tell me what just briefly what the IGL is, and then we can link to the we can end the Kennedy Krieger and we'll link to both of them. Yeah, yeah. So uh, before this test came along, we you know we in functional medicine would look at mm -hmm. mitochondrial dysfunction. All we really had was the cheek swab, we had the organic acid test, but now we've got this ability to look into that 300 lab parameters that tell us the following a mitochondrial numbers if they're high if they're normal or if they are 
a low in number. And mitochondrion, as you know, when they're low in number, they must be undergoing some form of autophagy or cell death, uh -huh. which ties into Nouveau's whole cell danger response theory that when we under threat perceived or real, mitochondria start to um, self-destruct and release their ATP extracellularly uh, that then sends off a whole inflammatory cascade that oxidizes lipid peroxide cell membranes and leads to this innate immune activation, micelle activation, et cetera, et cetera. What's the and specimen? What's the specimen for that test? Sorry. Blood. It's a blood test. Both are, both are blood tests. Okay. Blood, yeah. So it goes off and then they measure ATP production. They okay. measure percentage of ATP that's blocked. They measure cell-free DNA. Mm -hmm. I mean, DNA that's outside the cell shouldn't be there. Or it shouldn't be, yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't she? Uh, they look at DNA adducts, toxins sitting on the DNA, interfering with uh, protein expression, uh, interfering with the DNA expression of, of all the factors that go to make up messenger RNA and enzymes, et cetera, et cetera. It looks at phospholipid production, phospholipids, you know, phosphatidylcholine sure. being the most potent of all the cellular membrane um, ingredients. It measures phosphatidylethylalanine, the inner, you know, the, the phospholipid on the inner membrane, which transfers electrons in the electron transport chain. It looks at outer phosphatidylcholine. It looks at cardiolipin synthase enzymes to see if they're making cardiolipin, which is part of the inner membrane. It looks at um, whether you have what your amount of cardiolipin is. So you're looking at your phospholipid content. It also looks at um, mold markers, markers for um, fungal metabolites. It looks at mycotoxin metabolites. It looks at superoxide dismutase levels. It looks at oxidation of cell membranes. It looks at glutathione peroxidase, glutathione transferase. Um, it looks at cell uh, membrane voltage. Incredibly wow. helpful. You know, when you're looking at membrane voltage below 170 millivolts, it's like 150. And you're looking at intracellular calcium uh, excess or magnesium potassium deficiencies. It looks at metallothionine levels. It's, it's incredible wow. insight into toxicology and mitochondrial um, um, homeostasis. And from that, combined with the Kenny Krieger fatty acid panel, which looks at your polyunsaturated omega-3, omega-6 levels, and it looks at renegade and very long-chain fats, and it looks to see if you're myelinating adequately, et cetera, et cetera. You can uh -huh. really transform a person's biochemistry into something that ships them from the so-called cell, you know, cell danger response into a healthy response. And it takes on average, you know, four to six months of, of hard work. But if you address the mental, the mind body, the defense, yeah. the psyche and the biochemistry and toxicology in a hierarchical manner, and sometimes you've got to stop biochemical work and you got to go work psychologically or even spiritually sometimes um, but if you start working with complex patients in this way you'll very soon know when to stop biochemical work and to work at another level if you're sitting behind a desk <laughs> and the patient's in front of you and you've done beautiful biochemical work and you know that your work is impeccable and the patient's still sick you know you, you've addressed the wrong level and it's time to uh, look at another level. Yeah. 
Let's take a minute to hear from our sponsors. We are all searching for the magic longevity supplement, but many of us are on the wrong path. Health and longevity begins within the trillions of cells in our bodies, which is why Body Biophospholipid Complex is formulated with the integral phospholipids for cellular health. Body Bio PC is a liposomal formula providing the building blocks for better cellular functioning, neurotransmission, and mitochondrial support for better cognition, memory, and mental focus. Improving phospholipid levels will ensure our cells stay healthy as we age. And for New Frontiers listeners, head over to bodybio.com and use the code NF25 for 25% off all Body Bio supplements. Now let's get back to this month's episode. I would imagine that you're not, I mean, you said hierarchical and, and I think that that is true, but there's, a, but you're, it's, you're, you're doing it concurrently as well. I mean, you must be. You, you always are. Um, you're always doing it concurrently, but you, you, you learn to sense when it's time to address, say, amygdala overactivity and vagal tone shutdown, as opposed to doing intravenous lipids and butyrate. You right. know, right. sometimes you're doing all these beautiful biochemical interventions repeating the nutrition food gut hormones and the patient stays resistant and or hyperreactive and then you know they got an overactive amygdala and or underactive vagal nerve and so you've got to shift focus and go down a different path and just having done this for a long time i'm sure you have experiences you get to know when you probably are working at the wrong level yes yes Yes. I, you know, I just, this is such a simple thing, but you know, in my residency, we don't do IV therapy in my clinic here in Connecticut. We mostly do um, telemedicine these days, but in my residency, and back when you, you and I used to talk, I was also in a, in a clinic setting as well. And we, you know, just that IV experience, you, I thought about it because you just, you, I know you're doing IV and that we, we set up the environment to bring the energy down you know, and, and, and yeah. so even for those individuals who don't want to hear it, that there's a psychological component to their presentation, yeah. there's yeah. sort of backdoor ways to enter into that healing, um, kind of that healing relationship or that healing, um, he- meeting the needs for healing in that space, even when patients don't, don't want it. Well, it's, it's such an extraordinary, uh, there's such a dance that goes on in this complex relationship between the so-called healer and the one who's coming for your health, that if you're not cognizant of the complexities that may arise, one can attempt to impose uh, therapeutics onto a patient when the psyche is not intending to cooperate. It has no intent to allow that vulnerability. And it's you if, if you don't know sort of the trauma of that person, the defenses, the fragility, the resistances, you can often really get into a difficult therapeutic encounter. And so it behooves us as 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 healers, if you up you know, whatever the word may be, to stay very conscious of our own projections and our own inner. Um, inabilities and our own blind spots when we're interfacing with patients. And yes, they may have amygdala upregulation. They may be fragile and highly resistant. But does that mean that we 
get rid of them and say, I can't help you anymore? Does that mean that we have to dig deeper into our consciousness to try and meet them where they are? And if we can unlock the door that's previously been not open to them, uh, we can assist in unlocking that door. <laughs> There's an incredible flood of therapeutic material and healing material that gets unleashed. So I don't like to do or you know do neurobiofeedback and amygdala training and if the psyche of that patient isn't receptive to it. So it will Absolutely. require a lot of conversation and a lot of negotiation sometimes around some of these issues. And people can remain hyperreactive and highly fragile and resistant. And that behooves us to just stay with that patient if we can until mm -hmm. something shifts in the psyche. And often it does. Often it yes, does. that's been my experience as well. It's that... Um, when they don't achieve what they came to, to me to achieve, or they, or they get through some, but not all, yeah. then perhaps they're open to yeah. a broader inquiry. Yeah. I want to just ask, so I want to talk about, I want to get to your interventions. I know people will be very interested in how you're addressing some of the mitochondrial issues that you're seeing, but I just wanted to ask, you know, in your time in practice, uh, I mean, your practice now is self-selecting for challenging cases because you've been doing this for a long time and you're just recognized as, as an expert. But are you also seeing uh, sort of an uptake, uptick in these kind of complex patient presentations? That's all, it's all I see now. And um, sometimes I wish it wasn't. Um, right. I'm going to go back to an <laughs> insulin resistance case. Or, yeah. yeah. Hormone replacement therapy. Sure. Right. Right. <laughs> um, but it, I am excited by the challenge. Uh, as you know, um, there's no rest. Uh, I'm in my 60s and I don't think I've studied more uh, now. <laughs> I mean, when I, was, when I was a young medical student, uh, that is nothing. This is like hard. This is boot camp all over again. Yeah. You've got to stay ahead of all the research and all the latest theories and all the latest issues that come uh, across us but yes do am i seeing more complex cases absolutely absolutely and, and there's a change my... though would you just say there's sort of a change in the challenge of cases i mean again just going back to when you and i talked a lot um you know SIBO might be a a yeah. a, a challenging case but those no. days seem SIBO is like one of 24 things that need to be looked at, yeah. yeah right, um, right. You know, as we've expanded our diagnostic possibilities and as new researchers have come up, you know, Afrin and his mast cell activation syndrome along with Theodorides and the other researchers, that's thrown a huge level of insight into a certain presentation that we didn't have 10 years ago. Right. You know, so we have that. And the VOS mitochondrial cell danger response. Unbelievable what that's done to our consciousness as, as practitioners. It's just opened up. You know, before when we did functional medicine training, we looked at food, gut, hormones, and nutrition. But now that's, you know, a subset within a subset of complexity. And we should, that stuff we have to know backwards. Otherwise, we can't get anywhere. But what else do you bring to the table? And now we've got to bring in all these other things, you know, all these other factors into the healing relationship. And it is far more complex. There are a lot more sicker people. And, and they are still looking for the N squared, D squared solution. Mm 
Right. Even the ones who are educated, they will come and say, I've got mold Lyme, as I said in the beginning. And can you treat it? I said, uh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. But uh, is that what you really have? Or is that just what's showing up as a presenting feature? You know, people come with false positive antibodies on Lyme tests and they say, I've got Lyme. So oh, you've got a, a three on the arm and Lyme early spot. Is that really Lyme disease? Is that a false positive? And so you've got to know all these subtleties. You've got to constantly be in touch with the researchers and the lab directors. And you've got to You've got to listen to all the experts in our fields. You've got to, have to shine the light on a single aspect. And you've got to know how to incorporate that clinically in, in patients. Because patients are smart now. They come with all their research. Yeah, they and, are. And they know stuff. And sometimes it's misguided, you know, sometimes. But sometimes it's spot on. And they intuitively uh, can often sort of guide a path that is previously um, sort of hidden from you. They will often uncover it and, and and help shine a light down a certain pathway people are smart so i want to just i want to talk a little bit about your approach so i mean we could look at mast cell um activation or i mean I, you know the mitochondria the conversation i think is pretty provocative and one that's interesting and so like what well, what I mean are there are there core biochemical imbalances that you're looking for? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And can you just talk about some of these? Like, how? Like, let's pull together somebody with mitochondrial dysfunction. Like, I want to just kind of pull together yeah. how you're going to address it, and it, you know, maybe what you're looking for in laboratory and other you know tools of evidence, and then how you're actually addressing it clinically. Yeah. So if you know. When people present after your history, two, three hour history, um, you do your biochemical workup, take a very extensive dietary history, um, usually get dental workup, get sleep studies, neuroquant MRIs, brain studies, etc. And once you have those in front of you, what do you do first of all? So the first thing I do is I always look, I use my traditional medical insight and I look at straightforward pathology, you know, Free T3, it's low, and a TSH that's high, a B12 that's low, a vitamin. I look at straight biochemistry. Uh -huh. And I never bypass it. Uh, I, I pay very close attention to traditional medicines, biochemical imbalances. And look at nutrition um, in great detail. And it behooves us now with um, all these complex illnesses to know all the approaches to nutrition that are out there, whether it be GAPS or um, paleo autoimmune, low histamine, et cetera, et cetera. So I look at traditional biochemistry, I look at nutrition, and then I use our um, nutritionist um, chef health coach, um, Justin Stenger on our staff to take a dietary history and start to introduce a dietary approach, which is commensurate with their presentation. And most of the time, it's a paleo autoimmune low histamine diet, sometimes low FODMAP, sometimes low oxalate. But generally, I find getting people off some of those major foods that are inflammatory and getting onto a paleo autoimmune low histamine diet quietens the um, microbiome to an extent that we can begin to repair. So traditional biochemistry, nutrition, dietary approaches, and then start to look at all the things that most 
functional medicine doctors look at the um, food sensitivities, status of the gut, nutritional levels, macro micronutrients, antioxidants, toxicology, heavy metals, chemicals, mold, fungi, uh, mast cell activation in great detail, and look at hormone levels. Um, and I look at hormones in three distinct compo uh, compartments. I don't just do blood levels. I look at blood, saliva, and urine all on the same day to look at the different compartments of how hormones are attached to transport proteins, how they show up at the cell surface, and how they get metabolized through the methylation mm -hmm. pathways. I, do, I look at all three to start with. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I look at infectious agents. I do, and I, don't, I tend to do quite extensive infectious disease workups, um, both uh, B cell and T cell assessments. Um, I find if you just do T cell, you know, do LE spots, it's not enough. And if you don't do B cell, you often get very confused and you go down wrong pathways. So what, what tests are you using? Tell me what tests you're using. Oh, I'm using the Almond Lab. Okay. Uh, I do the LE spot and I use Igenex. I do the Igenex immunoblots and I do the um, co-infection panels. I use Galaxy Labs for the um, Bartonella. And I do also uh, use MDL uh, labs for some of the um, other infections, Garth Nicholson's lab. Okay. Those are the labs are usually used to look at infectious load. And then, so once I have that diagnostic roadmap, and then therapeutically, as I said, I correct any traditional metabolic imbalances, thyroid, hormones, whatever. So you'll start, you'll, you'll, so you've got diet and diet and, and then. You're gonna you're gonna start them on some thyroid if if they need it, some magnesium, yes. some B12, etc. So you'll do those foundational first do steps. Yes, and I often if there's great dysregulation in the QEEGs and or in the stress assessments and or in the MOCA cognitive assessment or the CNS vital signs or TOVA, I'll often start them in neurobiofeedback. We'll mm -hmm. start them on biofeedback programs. And start them on neuromodulation techniques using different, we have different devices that we use from traditional feedback to V light to photomodulation. We'll use different techniques. So often start those concurrent with food, food and um, traditional um, interventions, whether it be hormones or nutrition. And if the toxic burden is extremely high, I never go ahead and start to detoxify them day one sure and i never treat infections in the beginning even though mm -hmm. Navo is very clear that unless you get rid of the threat you're not going to change the cell danger response so i usually start out by using oral and intravenous lipid therapy or membrane therapy to try and provoke the mitochondria back into more of a healing response and I've found that profoundly influential in how uh, in patient outcomes. When so what we, is that? So we I do uh, you know a, a power drink or a, me, a membrane stabilizing shake, if you will, <laughs> where we put uh, we put into a blender phosphatidylcholine from Body Bio. Body Bio is the only phospholipid I use because of its um, very high phosphatidylcholine content, which doesn't break down in the gut. 
uh, and it contains the phosphatidylethylalanine, phosphatidylalanine. Mm. It contains all the subfractionations of phosphatidylalanine. Mm -hmm. So I use body bio phospholipids and body bio balanced oils, usually the six to three ratio and a four to one ratio. You put that in the shake along with minerals and electrolytes. And then any other ingredient that has shown up in the test that could be instrumental at restoring some homeostatic imbalance. So for instance, if they have low aminos on the, um, on the ion panel, we use amino acids. If they have um, low glutathione, we use liquid glutathione as well as oral glutathione, as well as oral NAC, you know, all the standard things we learn as functional medicine doctors. Mm -hmm. um, we put in tons of resveratrol if we can, mm -hmm. people tolerate it. And we use usually half a cup or a quarter cup of blueberries. We find most people don't seem to react adversely to blueberries. And then learning from Dr. Karazian, we chop up on a Sunday, I advise patients to go and get every vegetable they like, provided it's not histaminic or oxalates or something on their testing, which shows they shouldn't. Organic, chop it up, put it into the freezer. Every day in your shake, you take a couple of tablespoons or half a cup and you put that into the shake with the phospholipids. And then that becomes a liposomal polyphenolic oh compound that then crosses the blood-brain barrier oh. and exerts its antioxidant effect intracellularly. So that's been a game changer for, for my practice, um, along with intravenous therapies. I start with very, very low dose phospholipids, sometimes vitamins and minerals just to provide the micronutrients for the enzyme systems sometimes with intravenous amino acids, but generally I move over slowly but surely into phosphatidylcholine and glutathione intravenously, not to provoke a massive detoxification response, but to try and repair cell membranes. Cell membrane repair is better done with oral phosphatidylcholine, but the IV phosphatidylcholine conjointly with the oral not only helps the cell membrane repair, but also starts to gently sweep adducts off the toxins that are sitting on the DNA of the mitochondria. Hmm. And it's not aggressive, it's very gentle. Um, later on, we start to use butyrate and other short chain fatty acids um, to further the um, removal of adducts and toxins. How are you introducing those? Intravenously and orally. I use them quite a lot. I use oral butyrate and IV butyrate quite quite a lot. What what's the oral butyrate? And I mean, it's it's kind of it's smelly, it, but like in a capsule, like in an enteric coated capsule, or like how, what do what do you? Do well, there's you diff, do? Uh, the, you can get different kinds. There's a cal mag butyrate. There's a sodium butyrate. There's sodium potassium butyrate. So you've got to look at the electrolyte balance of the patient and then introduce the specific butyrate formulation that is going to be most helpful for that person's biochemistry. So if they've got intracellular calcium deficiency, you're going to use the calcium one. If they have POTS syndrome, by the way, that's one of the greatest, if you, one thing I learned <laughs> quite about 10, 15 years ago was to make sure every patient does the 10 minute cheap you know, lying standing test. If you if you misdiagnose POTS, that patient's never going to get better. And 
I know you're familiar with with it, but I do, you know, suggest that any young or new practitioner just get yourself, you know, an Omron blood pressure cuff. Every patient that comes in your door, lie them down, do their blood pressure and their pulse. After they've lied down for a minute or two, stand them up one minute, three minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes. Look at their blood pressure and pulse and look for drops in systolic uh, blood pressures and look at rises in pulse rates and those patients don't perfuse the mitochondria or the brain and they won't improve until you get increased perfusion to their cellular structures to their brains they just won't you have to treat that first and 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 are you addressing it with this protocol i address that with the standard sort of pots approaches mm. which is um you know, increased fluids with salt, a lot of salt, okay. two to three teaspoons of salt, salt sticks, compression stockings, and I liberally use fluoronef and midodrine and other other medications. Um, and it's a game changer. It's absolutely a game changer uh, in certain patients. And many, many people misdiagnosed, misdiagnosed. Yeah. You know, and there's a combination of sort of different you can get orthostatic hypertension, you can get postural orthostatic tachycardia syn syndrome, and you can just get uh, pure tachycardias, um, and they're different. And if I need to differentiate, I send them to cardiologists, and there's, we have one particular one in our city who does tilt table testing, he's written lots of papers, very experienced. Oh, God. And so we refer to him to sort of introduce further uh, medications if need be. And you and you patients should always know about the triad of, of dysautonomia mm -hmm. uh, and mast cell and uh, and gastric motility issues. Many patients present with um, mast cell activation, POTS, and uh, Los Danlos syndrome with dysautonomias and gastric motility issues, and they call triad or pentad patients as per Afrin's uh, group. And Why? Why are we seeing more of these people? I think the, um, the stresses imposed upon our modern society are overwhelming our defenses. We just become extremely vulnerable yeah. to these incoming, um, this incoming toxic load. We're not genetically um, resilient enough to withstand this onslaught, whether it be you know, electromagnetic fields or chemicals or foods or the fact that even the fact that we can open the fridge every, you know, five times a day and eat what we want. I mean, that's a stressor on our system. Yeah. Unbelievable. Mm -hmm. We just, we just, we've got out of sync with our innate biorhythms. And it's, you know, there's been a huge movement in the functional medicine community for, you know, biodiversity and regenerative agriculture and we're paying lip yep. service to this need but i don't know i think our dna and i think our microbiomes will eventually adjust to these incoming onslaughts i don't think we'll be extinguished it always appears that stresses on the system create greater resilience uh, down the line uh, and barring a sort of huge you know sixth apocalypse um i think we will become more resilient as we as we sort of evolve through these this toxic phase that we're going through 
But right now, I think we're very vulnerable and we're under a lot of stress, under a lot of toxic load. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, well, you know, we're just, we're kind of, we're heading, heading towards the end of the podcast. And I'm, you know, you've, I, 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 I you know, this is most, this is two clinicians. And so this is going to uh, create a lot of interest in your approach to care. I mean, I, I, I guess I have two questions. One would, but, you know, and one is, where do people learn more about this? this model that you're working from that sounds so powerful and you know and I certainly appreciate your casting a very wide net and people are coming to you because of that and so forth but um it I you know as you described such a careful start to the journey yeah oh oh by the way I I do I'm just I want to get we're we're going to try to piece together that shake recipe <laughs> It all right. sounds so awesome. We'll put it on the show notes, people. It's just like the most, that's just the most sophisticated shake yet. So I want to, I want to see if we can pull that together and put something on the show notes. Um, but you must be, I mean, you must be seeing some pretty good outcome just after this evaluation and you, and you're pushing the ship from the shore. I mean, you must be seeing some good change. And, and, and if not, I'm sure you're just really going back to rethinking. Um. I do. I don't have a research assistant in my office, so it's hard to know outcomes. You know, when one believes that one's practice is achieving remarkable outcomes, but I think unless you have a statistician in there, actually right. doing hardcore research, will never really know. Um, but what I've noticed, by the way, um, a lecture I did is on my website. Um, I lectured to the ICI conference and it's on my website where I do a one and a half hour synopsis of the seven stages. And I think it's, oh, okay, perfect. I think it's the most uh, insightful sort of snapshot of the levels and layers and, and complexity that's possible. Um, so, yeah. So um, the outcomes we have are the, from what I can tell, because one, one never really knows the drop-off rate. I don't think it's very large. Um, when patients present with complex illness and you do your due diligence and you throw the net far and wide and the patients can keep up with it, and many patients can because they're so educated and so driven, they're so sick and tired of seeing hundreds of people and get, not getting any better. Yeah. And you're looking at your data and you're looking at mitochondrial function and fatty acid function and ion panels and things, and you do repeat them from time to time. It has been my experience that within six months on average, on average, um, the test itself reverts from highly uh, problematic to restored function, the, the IGL test. You will see mitochondrial numbers go from low to normal. You will see phosphatidylcholine go from extremely low to normal. You will see glutathione levels come back. You will see microbial toxins disappear. You will see mercury, lead, cadmium, glyphosate levels disappear. But concurrent with that, the patient will tell you, I feel completely different. And we keep objective, we do different score systems, but I use the old MSQ from IFM. And patients' levels drop from you know, 180 to 20. Mm -hmm. Once you start working from the mitochondria 
outwards into the whole complexity of the mind body and familial inherited system if you start using a broad map and you just don't run down too many rabbit holes and you keep your head about you and you just work it through and if you hit a blank wall you just ask more questions you don't give up um you there is somewhere along in that experience that patients they feel better their symptoms improve and they um, move through that cell danger one two three into the cell danger three response the healing response and they they feel amazing we have a a large amount of patients who who do experience that once they've gone through that process but we always preface it with look this is only as successful as the amount of effort you put in if you stay passive there's nothing we can do you have to be a cooperative partner in this experience if you have side effects you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. you come to the table we find out what happened and you work through this process and if you can't you get yourself somebody an advocate who can help you but if in that sort of dynamic and with the staff the great staff i have and the sort of support systems and the ability to rerun lab tests from time to time i would posit a guess that the majority of our patients get better the majority i wish i had a statistic to tell you but i don't <laughs> maybe now's the time to get a PhD student in your in your practice it would be really nice to gather I know you've been at this for a long time it'd be nice to maybe get some data I think I should yeah yeah. yeah get a student yeah. <laughs> good 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 PhD work well Dr. Hoffman it was just really lovely to connect with you and talk about this folks we will gather as much as we can from um you know for the show notes and and link over to <laughs> to some of the content that he's referencing and and if you think of anything else just let us know and you know thanks for joining me today for this really nice uh dive into what you're doing thanks Gary. and nice to speak to you again after all these years yeah right absolutely <laughs> and hopefully i'll see you in person at aic not this year but next year yeah maybe who knows <laughs> I, I quite enjoy this sort of remote um telemedicine teleconference 